Howdy, Tanzilla Files, and welcome to episode number 118 of Escaping the Cave. It is the Tanzilla X pod, Tanzilla X over at Substack. If you are getting your Tanzillian goods uh, delivered to like Facebook, let me just say for right now that you might want to make sure you're subscribed to the Substack site. I put something up on Facebook <laughs> earlier this week, sort of laying out the reasons behind this. If you want to, you know, get all the details on that, go read it, but it's coming. I'm going to move everything over to Substack. So if you want to keep getting this stuff, please subscribe to the email list. Also download the app because it will ping you as soon as I upload something. Keep that in mind. In today's episode, we're going back to 2019. I have combined the main parts of two different episodes from August when I was just starting out the uh, Jacques propaganda series that I had begun uh, back then but never really completed. The first chunk you're going to hear is from the Vicarious Atonement and Inseminating Zealots episode. I think it's number 35. That sounds right. I think it was from uh, right around August 1st. And the second one is from episode number 36, which is entitled uh, Propaganda, Rationalization, and the Religious Mind. Now, these were recorded intended to be released in the same episode, but they started running so long back then that I broke them into two episodes. Today, I took the main chunks, took the current events stuff out, but this theme is coming back. It hasn't set well with me since 2019 that I never finished this series. Reasons behind that, uh, one of the episodes got flagged by YouTube, taken down dubiously for violating their terms of service. We're all familiar with how this works now, right? Having your content yanked down because uh, the uh, ideological ministers, the overseers, uh, don't like the content. It did something. It shocked me. It stunned me. I had never had anything like that happen. It's the only time that's ever happened with this podcast still to this day. But I was making headway. I was making progress. I had some serious momentum going. And uh, yeah, it completely just screwed with my head. I moved on to other things. And then COVID hit a few months later and I never got back to this. But I got to tell you, I've been listening to these episodes again. Going through and trying to figure out ways to steer the ship back toward that. To finish, at least finish the series that I was doing on that book. Propaganda, Jacques Ellul. I only did probably 20% of it, if even that. There was five times as much content. In the wings, waiting. A lot of it's already outlined, ready to go. I just never got there. But I really want to take this back there eventually. I need to figure out a way to meld the storytelling stuff into it, kind of update the database in my head from where it was in 2019 to where it sits in 2023. But when I do, there's going to be a flood of content. I've also still got the Jonathan Haidt material I never did. I've still got the Edward Bernays, more of Walter Lippmann, stuff from his book, uh, Public Opinion. But I had a whole, whole slew of projects waiting for me. Nicholas Carr, and the shallows, what the internet is doing to our minds. Something's happened. I started to reevaluate some things. I mentioned that I wasn't really comfortable with the uh, the direction of this this uneasy alliance that I found myself in with the anti-woke crowd, the far-right anti-woke crowd. The enemy of my enemy is my friend for now, right? But I'm not I'm not really at ease with this. I don't like where that 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 movement's heading. Newton's third law of extremism. For every radicalization, there's an equal and opposite radicalization. Well, you can see it already happening within this group itself. The promotion of the religious fundamentalism. Heading back to, I guess, the early 2000s. I'm not comfortable being too closely aligned. I want to have my lifeboat ready for when I want to abandon this ship. Again, I said it at the end of the last episode that my views on wokeism have not changed one iota. But I need to reevaluate my allegiances here a little bit. 
And so I started going back to this old material, and that took me to Nicholas Carr. It's taken me back to Jonathan Haidt. It's taken me back home, really. I feel like I was able to throw myself my own life preserver. So I ask for your patience just a little bit longer. I think it's a good thing maybe to upload some of this old stuff as well to get, because I do have a lot of new listeners. I mean, I, I, I basically went into hibernation for a year and a half. I think that a lot of the people who were listening to this podcast on a regular basis a few years ago, they're probably not there anymore. They probably just moved on, understandably. But also, downloads are increasing. <laughs> they're going in the right direction. So I'm assuming either some of you have come back or I'm finding new people. Hello there. Glad to have you aboard. But this is episode number 118. I have 117 really thick episodes back there. I can't expect you to go back and listen to each and every one of them. I would love it if you did. But I think it's a good idea to take some of the main episodes, some of the episodes with the main content, the main ideas embedded inside of them and bring them back or just recut them. I may do that too. I'm going to do it chronologically this time. So I may re-upload these again or I may just recut them and integrate. Maybe I'll just go back to those outlines and uh, update, as I said before, update the database. I think this is really good. I mean, there's another book over here that I want to get into that I really want to share, I think, with this audience in particular. Uh, it's called The Courage to Be Disliked. I devoured this, I, I guess, probably, I don't know, last year sometime. It's, it's really good. Kind of written in a little wonky way. It's Japanese, a Japanese writer. He writes it in like that. I, I think he was trying to channel Plato's dialogues <laughs> somehow. And he did. He did a good job of it. But the first 15 or 20 pages, I about threw it away. I was like, what the hell is this shit? <laughs> but it goes into how you can't be your own individual person if you lack the courage. The key word here is courage to be disliked. Because if you're an independent person, if you're thinking by yourself, if you're bucking convention, you're going to butt heads with other people. They're not going to like you for it. And the courage part, as I mentioned in an episode last year, and I've talked about it a lot, that there's no courage in not caring what anybody thinks. That's mental illness. Everybody says, I don't give a shit what anybody thinks. They're lying. They do care. People care deeply, either that or they are literally mentally ill. But it takes courage to know that your points of view, your opinions, your thoughts, your ideas will create an intense dislike toward you and yet still move forward. That's real courage. Moving forward, not because of an absence of fear, but despite it. That is the definition of courage. Knowing there might be consequences, a price to pay, but being willing to move forward anyway. Endure it. Now, why am I mentioning this? This ties into a lot of what you're going to hear today. Independent thought. And why and how people fall into these crystallized doctrines and orthodoxies, these political, ideological religions. And it might be the default setting of human beings. They're afraid on some level that their thoughts are going to create negative social consequences. Alul talks about this a great deal. I've talked about social momentum. How changing your mind, changing your opinion, sitting quietly, alone, in a solitary state, considering your thoughts and your actual opinions as a human individual. You have to make a decision at some point whether or not you want to actually follow through with these, follow these, wherever they go. But what happens is that you're often required to change your mind. And pretend that you've said things, done things, horrific things, offensive things. You've pissed people off, offended people. You've burned bridges. 
And then later on, you decide, well, you know what? I was wrong about that. There's a social price that'll be paid. Social momentum is the idea that most people won't bother with that. They want nothing to do with that pain, that social ostracizing, mockery, criticism, flip-flopper, that kind of stuff. That's what social momentum is. Most people, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to keep going with the momentum that I've already established. Well, the courage to be disliked is part of that. It cuts to the core of what it takes to achieve independence, true independence. Because to repeat, if you do that, if you grab a hold of who you are, if you raise your flag and stand beneath it with defiance, you are going to piss somebody off. You're going to piss a lot of people off. You may end up politically homeless. You may be attacked by both sides. Do you have the courage, the dignity, to endure that knowing that it's coming. And deep down inside, I think I probably explained this too much because I think almost everybody understands on some level intuitively what I'm talking about. This is the kind of stuff that I need to get back to. <laughs> There's going to be an anti-woke flavor. There's some of it in here. In fact, most of the uh, first part of this, first 30 minutes or so, I use liberals as the example. They think they're way above all of this. The self-righteousness is strong. <laughs> I put a short musical interlude in between in order to sort of separate them out. But that's really good. The religious mind. Post hoc rationalizations. Snap judgments. Putting yourself on the side of righteousness via rationalization. Post hoc rationalization. Thank you, Jonathan Haidt. And how the religious mind is not limited to theology. It's a people thing. And this ties directly to the storytelling stuff. Storytellers, not truth seekers. Religion, political or theological, is a story. Something that puts us at the center of the universe. A propaganda at its core. What is it? It's a story. It's a story spun to get a certain effect. To create proselytes, militants, a call to action. Episode number 118. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for clicking in. I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what's on your mind. And what's on my mind today is what you're thinking. And we're going to talk about psychological crystallization today. I've been uh, hitting at this for a, for a long time. This is going to be taken from Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda, once more. And this explains fanaticism. This explains why people are so homogenized in their thought. This is the one thing about today's uh, current political climate that has always bugged me. For 10 years, I've noticed that whenever I was engaging in political conversations, I could predict the argument before it happened. I was talking to people about this in 2009. I know that each and every one of you who are listening to this, you've had that experience. When you've been having some conversation with somebody an argument of some sort about politics with somebody on the other side. And you knew exactly how the conversation was going to go before it even really got underway. And the reason 
or the thing that's behind this is psychological crystallization, where the people have taken the propaganda that they've ingested, the propaganda that's been ejaculated into their cranium, and have taken it as gospel, have taken it as truth, the word of God. That's why they assume God is on their side. The reason behind why homogenous thought, almost like they're fabricants, prefabricants coming off an assembly line with the same imprint emblazoned into their mind. Everything they believe is the same. Now, they may repackage it differently. They may spin it differently. They may use different words and clever argumentation, but that's just a rationalization to support the generic thoughts, to protect themselves from actually having to think about the things that are coming out of their mouths. And they don't want to think about those things because they've been inseminated. And they have gotten to the point where the doctrine, the religion, the scripture, yeah, I'm using a lot of religious phraseology here, and (laughs) there's more coming because it's right here. I came up with this political religion thing, this ideological religion thing. I did a whole show on this uh, last February or March of 2018. I was on to this a long, long, long time ago, before anybody, before I had ever seen anybody talking about how ideology has become a religious belief. And it was one of those things, like 2014 and sniffing out the disinformation campaign. They're getting it from somewhere. Nobody else was saying that when I was. Yeah, I'm going to toot my own goddamn horn. It's my podcast. I saw this before anybody. I could not... Couldn't, I had to sit and struggle to figure this out and to try to analyze it myself. But I noticed over the course of the last year, this is becoming a big theme. It's always the other guy. Uh, how oh, they think they're acting like their beliefs are a religion, but ours, on the other hand, <laughs> we're engaging in this collective critical thought. We're the ones dropping the truth bombs. There's no such thing as collective critical thought. I've been over that. I'll probably be over it again. If you're part of a congregation, if you're part of a political organization, if you consider yourself a passionate, committed liberal, you are just religious, just as religious as those folks down in Jonestown or those heathens over there in Trump Town. You have taken it upon yourself to adopt someone else's interpretation of the world. You have taken it upon yourself not to think, but to believe. And that, I think, if you're one of those folks who criticizes religion, and you folks on the left always are, well, you're doing the same thing with your ideology. What's the process to get a person, a well-intending person, I'm not condemning you as being evil. I do believe your heart's in the right place. I really do. This isn't malicious. It's not intentional. But it doesn't matter. It's not you. Have you ever... Imagine this. Say you've got six of your friends, and you're sitting at somebody's apartment, you're trying to decide which movie to go see. How hard is it to get six people to agree on a movie? Or food? 
Think about that for a second, and then think about how <laughs> out of the ordinary, how just utterly incredible that everybody in your echo chamber believes the same thing. Homogenous thinking. Fabricants. Clones. How is that possible? Nobody thinks that alike in that big of a group, except in religion and politics. Maybe there's some other, I don't know, realm. But those are the two that I can think of right off the top of my head. Religion and politics. Rigidity and conformity in thought. Scripture. Doctrine. I mean, why is it? How is it? What is the mechanism where people will surrender their intellectual autonomy? And I, I, I submit that it's intellectual dignity. It's undignified to let someone else think for you. It's undignified to surrender your individuality to a group or to a doctrine or orthodoxy. How do you convince yourself? What level of gymnast, <laughs> mental gymnast are you, to convince yourself that you're still dignified while you do not have, you don't have intellectual autonomy? You cannot think for yourself that someone else is dictating this to you, dictating not only your thoughts, but your feelings. And how you feel about other people via the dopamine addiction, the elephant crack of self-righteousness. How is that dignified? And beyond that, how can you sit there, look in the mirror, and consider yourself an individual? You are a fabricant at that point. But there's a mechanism to this. And that's what I want to talk about if I ever get to it. And I'm going to get to it right now. Psychological Crystallization. The book is called Propaganda. The author's name is Jacques Alul. If you're new to the podcast, this book that I've been <laughs> featuring a lot of and will a lot more, I haven't even begun on this. It gets worse, a lot worse. Uh, but this book uh, was written in 1965. And it's prophetic. He's talking about things in this book. Again, this is for the new listener. He's talking about things in this book where he was observing the effects of propaganda back in 1965. We're talking like over-the-air TV and radio and newspapers. This wasn't too long after World War II. He had Goebbels to draw from. And they'd had, what, 46 years of propaganda. A little longer than that. It started in World War, World War I. They used propaganda dragged the population into supporting World War I, and it took off as an industry under the name Public Relations, Edward Bernays, after they figured out that if you can use propaganda to draw people and to garner support for a war, you could most certainly use it for peace. Advertising, politics, all that. Goebbels refined it a little bit more, and it's been refining itself ever since. At this point in 1965, everything he's writing in this book, with a few exceptions that are usually technological in nature, because it was 1965, primitive days. But everything else in this book describes to a T what's happening to us in 2019. How much has propaganda evolved and sophisticated itself in 54 years since this was written? How has technology 
Goebbels said that he wanted a, a radio program. His dream was to have a radio program in Nazi Germany where the entire populace, the entire population was engaged in the events of the nation. What do you think social media is? Is there anything, any better way to get the entire nation engaged than to have a device that you can ping in their front pocket all the time? The device is always on you. They can ping you whenever they want, except when you're sleeping, and half the time they can do it then. This is, as I told Matt earlier tonight, Goebbels' wet dream. Is there any wonder we are where we are? If you read this book, I encourage you to, I implore you to get your hands on this book and read it with disconnected eyes. Don't just apply it to the other guy. Apply it to your camp as well. It will horrify you. It should horrify you. And there's no sausage party hope here. The only solution, the only protection, the only prophylactic, propagandistic prophylactic, is abstinence. You have to detach. You have to get the dog out of the fight. You've got to get your identity detached. from the, You have to excommunicate from the church to where you just do not have any personal investment in the political process. And you also have to cut your access to the propaganda stream because you are, you're, you're not impervious. You are helpless, in fact, before it. You cannot resist the psychological manipulation subconsciously of this propaganda bombardment, this nonstop stream of propaganda that's coming your way every minute of every single day. You are powerless against it. I don't care what you think. You are. You got to figure out a way to detach. Good fucking luck, right? Oh, but I won't be informed. You're not informed anyway. If you're gobbling up every piece of current events information and data, you can't process all that. You can't take that in and critically think. That thing you think is critical thought is generalizations. It's generalizing. It's stereotyping. It's getting a feeling for what box to put it in. You're not digging deep into it. You have no clear understanding of anything. You can't. Your brain isn't that powerful. You can't possibly think through all of this. You have to generalize. You have to compartmentalize and just feel it. That is the power of propaganda. The data deluge, choking on data, the current events, man, I've talked about a lot of this stuff. And I will in-depth Moving forward, but I need to get going on this. All right, psychological crystallization. Jacques Ellul's propaganda from 1965. He starts out by saying a distinction between public and private opinion is the distinction between a collectively shared doctrine. All right, collectively shared doctrine. What you and your group collectively believe. And... An opinion reached through the process of individualized critical thought. Sitting by yourself, thinking by yourself about what you, you think about these things. That is the distinction between public and private opinion. Propaganda furnishes objectives. It also organizes the person's personality into a system, a predetermined mold. 
by which they can manipulate you. Influenced by propaganda, certain latent drives, right? Latent drives, quiet drives, internal drives that you may not even be aware of. They're vague, they're unclear, they're often without any particular objective. Under the influence of propaganda, these things suddenly become powerful, direct, and precise. They're triggering you. They are triggering you. Triggering these latent internal drives, right? And prejudices that are already existing about any event, anything. We all have prejudices. Sorry, Moonbeam, you've got them too. And maybe they're just stereotypes about Trump voters, but you've got prejudices. These things are greatly enforced and hardened intentionally at propaganda. And the target of the propaganda is told that he is right and just and righteous in harboring these prejudices. I keep thinking about the the liberals, the anti-prejudice liberals who have prejudices, these preconceived notions. I'm not talking about racial prejudices, okay? Prejudice means one thing, prejudging. I keep thinking about them, the the inbred Trump voter thing. Guns, God, and I don't know, whatever the other one is. You're told by propaganda that you are right in harboring these prejudices against the outgroup. can be racial. It can be. It can be a lot of things. Whatever is there, whatever is collective, whatever runs through a certain group or through, uh, through a certain sect. But if it is shared collectively, then the propagandee, whoever the victim is, whoever the target is, discovers reasons and justifications for the prejudice when it's shared. When it's pronounced openly. I know you're thinking of Trump and racism, aren't you? But it goes both ways. You ever get together with your resistance friends and start bashing on Trump voters or on conservatives in general? I know a couple of you that I've talked to personally in the last couple of months. I'm not going to name you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to shame my friends, but that's the, uh, the justification that comes from sharing it and pronouncing it openly. It reinforces it in your head. The elephant feels fine. And why is that important? I'm about to tell you. This hardening of an individual's prejudices permit him to resist facts and the pressure of any events that run contrary to his prejudice enables him to resist facts. He can exist in an alternate factual universe. That's the reinforcement that comes from having it openly pronounced within your group. A group can be three people. It doesn't have to be a mob. That's huge. And don't, don't go sitting there sniff, sniffing your own farts, liberals. I have seen you do this. I've seen you do this, I would dare say, more than I have seen Trump bots do this. You think it's okay because your target's white. There is no cognitive mental difference between having a prejudice against a group of white Trump voters than it is to have a prejudice against a group of black Obama voters. What's the difference? It is prejudice. It is bigotry. Just not how you choose to define it. But you know what? We've talked about hijacking words and definitions. How you personally choose to spin and redefine a certain word does not change the nature of the thing. And that's exactly what that is. I think if you sat down and actually thought about it for 10 minutes, (laughs) objectively, 
without your group around you, trying to trying to break you out of that spell, trying to break you out of that critical thought spell. I think if you sat there and thought about it for 10 minutes objectively, you'd probably, assuming you have full cognitive function, you'd probably come to the same conclusion. He moves on to say that the stronger the conflicts are in a society, the stronger the prejudices. I have this in bold, in huge type, because this is hugely important. The stronger the conflicts in a society, oh, we're there, the stronger the prejudices. Propaganda that intensifies conflict intensifies the prejudices in this way. The prejudices are already inflamed. And if you have propaganda that is intensifying conflict, it just throws kerosene on the fire. We've been there for a long time. Lul also says that once propaganda begins utilizing and directing individuals, there is no chance to retreat. The individual cannot reduce his animosities or seek uh, reconciliations with opponents. The damage is done. And even if he wanted to, the propaganda won't let him. The doctrine will not let him. The sense of self-righteousness won't let him. I talked about another thing in the last podcast. His past actions may not let him. He may have done and said things that he can't walk back without doing serious damage to his ego and his public image. Especially in the day of social media. You cannot walk it back. Without, well, I'm not going to say you can't. Most people will not even bother, even risking that sort of cognitive dissonance. Propaganda also provides a supply of already made judgments. You already know how to think. You already know what you need to know about it. And these people, these issues, and everybody that's involved in them. Ready-made judgments. And a lot of times there are only vague notions in place before the propaganda set in. Foggy idea what you thought about these things, but once the ejaculate hits your cranium, you knew exactly what you thought without actually thinking it through. This is the insemination of opinions, part of it. You didn't think about it. You read somebody's opinion piece on it and adopted it. You didn't go through the heavy lifting of actually thinking about it. You found something that made you feel good, made you feel righteous, made you feel godly in the ideological sense, and you adopted it. And these judgments permit the uh, propagandee to face any situation. He will never again have a reason to change judgments that he will thereafter consider the one and only truth. You are not going to change his mind. He is not going to change his mind. This goes back to last year as well. The switch is internal. He has his judgments. He has his rationalizations for these judgments provided to him. He has no reason to flip that switch. This is Heights Elephant on meth. These judgments and these justifications reinforced by the group, reinforced by propaganda. This is the echo chamber. I mean, I don't need to spell this out for you, do I? We all know what this is by now, don't we? We've all experienced this, either in ourselves or for ourselves with people we've interacted with. And we always probably have this dumbfounded look on our face. I can't believe he believes that. And then the problem is, 
when you start to excommunicate, you go through the painful process of excommunication, you realize when you start looking in the mirror that you were doing the same thing. That's why people don't do it. That's why people prevent themselves from understanding what it is they're doing. Because deep down inside, the rational mind is still there. The rational mind is experiencing a very quiet and silent cognitive dissonance. And it will, the elephant and the ego, the self-rationalizing, self-righteous mind will not let you go there. Because it's horrifying. And then once you do, well, I mean, what happens? What do you, if you do that in one instance, oh my God, it might trigger something else. You might have to rethink everything. <gasps> oh my God. Anyway, this is how propaganda standardizes uh, current ideas. This is the homogenized thinking. Standardized ideas in one camp and the other. Standardized ideas hardens stereotypes. I talked about stereotypes in the last episode, how propaganda provides these stereotypes. God's gun and xenophobia. Right? It also provides thought patterns in all areas. It tells you, shows you, guides you as to how you're supposed to think. It gives you acceptable patterns of thought in all areas. Propaganda gives the individual the stereotype he no longer has the trouble to work out for himself as well. How often do you suppose, or how many of you who have these stereotypes in your head, I've had them, but how many of you have actually taken the trouble to go out and really investigate the people you've stereotyped to find out what they really think? Have you taken the trouble to sit down and have a non-confrontational conversation with these folks and find out if, the, you know, in the, the example I keep using, they're really xenophobic. Are you sure they're really xenophobic? Are you sure they're religious nuts? Are you sure they own guns? Or is that just a stereotype that you've adopted because you like it and it makes you feel good and uh, elevated, evolved, superior? Propaganda furnishes these things in the forms of labels. Slogans. Slogans. Oh, the slogans are fucking fantastic. Also, these ready-made judgments. Now, propaganda transforms ideas into slogans. Ideas into slogans and uh, by giving, quote-unquote, the word, the scripture, the doctrine, the religion, the orthodoxy. Oh, there are so many words to choose from. Convinces the individual also, you ready for this, convinces the individual that he has an opinion. <laughs> no, he has commandments by which to live his life. Properly and appropriately, of course. So in this way, it codifies, codifies social, political, and moral standards. I'm going to say that again. It codifies, standardizes social, political, and moral standards. This is a plague as well. Now, symbols are a big part of this. He goes into this a little bit. Uh, related to the psychological phenomenon of the stereotype. The symbol is related to the stereotype. So if you have a problem like these, um, I don't know, these Confederate statues, that's a symbol. It's a symbol that people rallied around as something evil. It's related to the stereotype of the Republican racist, the Southern racist. I have lived down south. I lived in the Florida Panhandle. <laughs> I was stationed in Millington, Tennessee. I've traveled through there. I've been through there a lot. There are a lot of racists down there, but they're not all racists. But you've stereotyped them that way, haven't you? As have I. It's true. 
But since you've stereotyped the Southern man as a racist, now the symbol of the Confederate statue has tied itself into that. And it's triggered you through your stereotype to action. Tear down the symbol. That is a propaganda-induced action that I was talking about before. Active and passive actions. Active people down there marching, trying to get them torn down, while your uh, passive action, taking to the social media and clicking likes on everything that says the southern man is a racist and these statues are literally evil. They don't represent southern heritage at all. They represent racism. They're not allowed to have a heritage. They're not allowed to have their own symbols of pride because you find them distasteful. Do you see how it's codifying things, how the symbol works, how it's tethered to the stereotype? That's a really good example. Now, the stereotype is also the supposed value judgment. You've got the stereotype of the Southern man. It's a value judgment. He's bad, therefore, since you are not the Southern man, you are, quote-unquote, unracist. Oh, I'm not racist at all. That is a self-value judgment. And this is all acquired by belonging to a group and without any sort of intellectual labor. Insemination. You didn't think this through. You didn't go wandering around Alabama to find out if everybody down there was a racist. Oh, no. You just became part of the group that says everybody in Alabama is a racist and therefore avoided the intellectual labor. I can do this for the Trump bots as well. There are a lot of racists out there that do the same thing to black people, that do the same thing to Mexicans. It doesn't matter. It all works the same. I'm using you, liberals, because you think you're immune to it. And your variety, your brand of propaganda, is becoming really totalitarian. I know you don't see it, but it is. That's why I'm using you. Because you seem to think, again, you seem to think you're immune to this, like you've been inoculated at birth by the the holy patron saint of liberalism. You're no better than the Trump bots in this regard, I'm sorry to say. The stereotype also reproduces itself automatically with each stimulation. That's self-explanatory. Every time you log on to your Twitter account or your Facebook page and you see a meme or you see an example, an extreme example, real or not, doesn't matter. It can be contrived. I think I could probably discuss uh, Vladimir Putin and the, um, the, the last election interference campaign. When I talk about things that are contrived, where you take a, an extreme example of the outgroup, show them to be evil, Satan, whether it's real or not, does not matter. That reinforces the stereotype as soon as you see it. That's why people love to share things, and I do this too. I admit it. I still do it. Nobody is impervious to this. But that's why people take these extreme examples of the other guy and start passing it around their echo chamber because it reinforces the stereotype. It's insidious. The next one's pretty obvious. These stereotypes arise from uh, feelings a person has for one's own group, self-superiority, or against the out-group. And liberals are really peculiar in uh, this, uh, this regard when it comes to uh, white men, to the white devil. How they feel about their own group or against the outgroup. What if they're one and the same thing? What if you're a white man condemning white men? How does that work in your fucking head? What is the white equivalent of House Negro? I have not gotten my hand my head around that. I have ideas about it. 
And I could go on a 20-minute rant here if I wanted to, real easy, about what's going to happen to you <laughs> if you get what you want and your position is lowered to the bottom of the cultural totem pole. Do you think they're going to like you then? They like you now because you're beating yourself in front of them. Bad Whitey, what's going to happen if they get what they want, if you help them succeeding in getting what they want? Do you think they're, they're going to love you? You're fucking high. What are you doing? That doesn't even run down the dignity line. Self-dignity. Having just a little bit of dignity. A little bit of pride. Instead of being judged by the worst of your race, you sound like a Catholic boy who's bemoaning the fact he has a dirty penis. What is wrong with you? Stop that. Have some dignity. I must move on because I have a lot more, but I could go on and on. You're welcome. The propaganda also uh, attaches himself passionately uh, to the values represented by his group. And when there's passion, there's not critical thought. Passionately to the values represented by his group and, at the same time, rejects the cliches of the outer group. Even though they mirror own. It's a peculiar thing. He also says that to share the prejudices of a group is only to demonstrate one's affiliation to this group. Virtue signaling. There's this guy named Stencil that he uses that he quotes that says the stereotype is a matter of thinking, of interpreting experience, a, 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 a matter of behaving, but is found solely, I swear to God he says this, on emotive reactions. Jonathan Hype, come on down. You're the next contestant on. Who's going to clean up this pile of elephant shit on the floor? That's a stereotype, which is stable. And the stereotype's always stable. Helps man to avoid thinking. It helps man to avoid taking personal positions to form his own opinion. They're already there via the stereotype. The man reacts constantly, as if by reflex, in the presence of the stimulus evoking the stereotype. This reflex permits him to have a ready-made, though apparently, apparently, the key word is apparently spontaneous opinion in any situation. Does that sound familiar to you? Let me repeat that. The reflex permits him to have a ready-made, though apparently spontaneous, <laughs> Opinion in any situation. In fact, it gives him the sense of the situation. It defines the situation for him. And with regard to an ethical problem, the stereotype is the criterion of values. The stereotype defines the values in an ethical situation. It's usually formed in a limited group, but tends to develop to extend itself to an entire collective. It's a virus. It's endowed with a force of expansion. <laughs> Moreover, it gradually detaches itself from the primordial images that have aroused it and then takes on a life of its own. It detaches itself from the original spawning thought and takes on a life of its own. Maybe this is how. You go from lobbing racist bombs, racist bombs at things like Charlottesville. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. 
but racist suddenly came into the, it became a crutch. It became uh, sort of a cliche of choice, uh, uh, the utility word like fuck to lob at the guy I disagree with. It's a wonderful, wonderful. It's become a, a utility word like fascist. You don't even know what fascist means. You don't even know if that person's a racist, but by God, he's got to be. It's detached itself, maybe from Charlottesville, where it was used specifically, and now it has a life of its own. You're just throwing it around, throwing it around. It's a stereotype. The racist Trump supporter. Yeah, it has a life of its own. He uses a really good example here. He says to ask a group what it thinks of some sentence written by Victor Hugo results in the Hugo stereotype. Because they already know who Victor Hugo is, they'll base their opinion on what they think of Victor Hugo. But if they ask their opinion of the same sentence without giving the author, without saying who it's coming from, it evokes no stereotype and elicits a very different opinion. Think about that. I mean, a lot of the stuff that people condemn in Trump or, I don't know, pick a liberal, if you were to take that thought and take the name off of it and put it in front of the same person who would hate the sentence because it was uttered by Trump or, say, Elizabeth Warren. If you were to take that sentence and put it in front of them and take the name off of it, they would give you a completely different opinion of what they think of the sentence because they'd actually read the sentence without it being tainted by the the author. as you no doubt know by now, every good political organization, every good political campaign ideology has a slogan of some sort. And the slogan, according to Mr. Alul, uh, contains the demands, the expectations, and the hopes of the mass and the mob. Hope and change. Make America great again. I wonder what's going to come out of this political campaign. Which childish slogans we're going to hear uh, as the 2020 election approaches. The slogan also expresses the established values of the group. Again, make America great again. We're nationalists. It also determines with great precision, he says, the type of group an individual will orient himself toward whether or not he is a member. And here's the thing. When we talk about these sort of value systems, These are things that we need to establish, these standards, these categories, our values. It's an evolutionary thing, man. We didn't, you know, evolve giving each lion, bear, or snake the benefit of personal nuance. We just learned to avoid them. Evolutionary, man. 
Also through propaganda, this is done spontaneously to avoid effort, mistakes, and hard choices. It's prepackaged, pre-provided. Propaganda gives overwhelming force to this process. And once in it, can no longer modify judgments and thought patterns. It has you. These value systems also spring forth from the media employed, who you choose to get your information from, which gives the appearance of objectivity to subjective impulses, and it also springs forth from everybody's adherence to the same standards and prejudices. This is groupthink. This is the mob mentality. The opinion and judgment may be wrong, right? But they become unimpeachable, pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) through uh, the intoxicating strength of collective belief. The mob mentality, this is crystallization. Next, he talks about collective belief and obsession. The individual assumes the collective belief as his own. Assumes it. And this is key. The weight of these opinions would play only a small part in the psychological life of someone unaffected by propaganda. But once you're in it, these opinions become huge and important. Blown out of proportion. By crystallization, these images begin occupying a person's entire being. You become obsessed, pushing out other feelings and your own judgments. All truly personal cognition, critical thought, personal cognition, critical thought is doused. And the man is finally consumed with nothing but these prejudices, these stereotypes, and beliefs around which his world revolves. Everything is seen through that filter. Everything. In his personal life, he'll eventually judge everything by such crystallized standards. In his personal life. Public opinion metastasizes through propaganda and ultimately suffocates the individual's private opinion. Public opinion in this context, meaning the opinion of the mob, suffocates the individual's own private opinion. It's gone, snuffed out. If you have an opinion, have an opinion that differs from the group, smothered in the crib. And that leads to self-justification, rationalization, what I like to term elephantitis. Jonathan Haidt, post hoc rationalization of an emotive conclusion. An inseminated emotive conclusion that feels good because everybody's reinforced it. What you think you're doing when you're debating is probably post hoc rationalization. Trying to reinforce a judgment. Self-justification. I'm going to say the phrase again, post hoc reasoning slash rationalization. Jonathan Haidt, thank you very much. Jonathan Haidt should be a companion reader to this book, The Righteous Mind. And people have a huge need and desire for justification as well. People need to be able to justify their beliefs, self-justify. And propaganda fills this need. It's the feeling you get when you feel righteous and you feel, so you feel self-righteous and you see it, you go to your Twitter feed and you feel reinforced by a dose of happy thoughts, tasty propaganda. And the reason that's appealing is because ordinary and organic justifications are fragile. They're prone to doubt. You doubt yourself because they're yours. You're on unsure footing. 
Because your own thoughts, your own opinions are original. There's nobody out there regurgitating them word for word, letter for letter. On the other hand, justification provided by uh, propaganda is irrefutable and solid. As it's not yours. The self-doubt's gone. Right? It's coming from outside. Somebody who knows better than you. Somebody who's, I don't know, written it better, made it sound better. And it's coming from a million different places, so therefore it must be right. That's the justification. Our own self-doubt, questioning ourselves, doesn't come into play. It's wholly eliminated by the support of the mob who's sharing, enforcing these beliefs and justifications. This is the brilliance of Emerson's uh, nonconformity. If I know your sect, I can predict your argument. Self-reliance, read it. The individual comes to believe these external justifications, these inseminations, and considers them eternal truths. (laughs) Allowed to unburden himself of all guilt and self-doubt, loses all feelings for the harm he might do. On the contrary, he attributes to the enemy all the wrongs, crimes, even atrocities he himself is in the process of committing. Something tells me that's important. Freed from uh, all sense of responsibility except for the responsibility propaganda instills and inseminates inside of him, he's become a drone. Rationalization then builds the monolithic individual. Perfectly adapted to objective situations. (laughs) Nothing can create a split within him. That's why I keep saying, don't try to save these folks. They are solid pieces of cognitive granite at this point. The rationalization, the propaganda eliminates internal conflict. It eliminates tensions. It eliminates self-criticism and self-doubt. Have you ever noticed how cocksure these virtual avatars proselytizing all over social media. Have you noticed how confident they are? They are not burdened by self-criticism or self-doubt of their opinion. They don't even think about it. They know that God is on their side. Why would they doubt themselves? Proselytes. It also creates a one-dimensional being, one without depth, nuance, or a range of possibilities. A one-dimensional being without depth or nuance is a Puritan, a fundamentalist. This is where you step into the realm of Westboro Baptist Church, or ISIS, or Jonestown, blah, 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 blah. Nowhere good. He'll have the rationalizations. Not only for his past actions, but he's also got the rationalizations for everything he may do in the future. He marches forward as a militant proselyte, fully assured of his righteousness. His position right next to God. And tied into what I was saying before about these cocksure people you see all over social media, these folks are formidable in what Alul calls their equilibrium. More so because it's almost impossible to break the harness of justifications. Justifications provided for him. This is Jonathan Haidt. This is Jonathan Haidt. This is Jonathan Haidt. If I could find Ken Ham real quick, I would play some Ken Ham. Remember, I I think that uh, Bill Maher interviewed him in uh, Religious. And Ken Ham was not going to be knocked off that harness, man. 
There's no way. I used an anecdote from Jonathan Haidt a few episodes back about how people will not be knocked away from their emotive conclusions. He used the example of like a brother and sister on vacation in France somewhere and they want to have sex together. Can't get pregnant, no STDs, nobody's being convinced or coerced, just going to happen once. Nothing bad could possibly happen, but this brother and sister are trying to decide if they should fuck. (laughs) Ooh, Yeah, I know, right? The question put to these people in the study was, is it wrong for them to do that? And everybody pretty much said, yeah. But then, that was the point. And then, the researcher started to ask them why. And they started to come up with all of these different reasons, but the, the reasons were taken care of in the setup. Well, what if she gets, no, she can't get pregnant. Well, there might be emotional damage. No, no, they're just going to move on from there. It's fine. They, both of them want to do it. Nobody's being coerced. Well, they could get diseases. No, no, they're fine. Nobody has a disease. They're going to use protection. Nothing bad could happen. Is it okay for this brother and sister to have sex? And they would just go rounds and rounds and rounds. They became morally, ethically bewildered as these reasons that were in their head were shot down. They couldn't explain why it was wrong. (laughs) Just is. That's eventually where it got to, that most of these people, I just think it's wrong. I don't care why. Just dug their heels in. Didn't bother to have a conversation with them after that. Just now. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Have you had those conversations with somebody politically where you start, you try, you're trying to dig through rationally and you just can't? That's it. Jonathan Haidt, The Righteous Mind. When you're done with the lul, go pick it up. Tensions are always a threat to the propaganda. Yes, yes. Tension. <laughs> Bad cognitive dissonance. Tries everything to escape these tensions. Self-preservation, baby. And they do it by running to the comfort of their own online mob, their group, their congregation, summoning rhetorical reinforcements as psychological justification and also to bum rush maybe an interloper or two. Let's gang pile this fucker. It's congregational support. It's fellowship. In the most religious of terms, it is. Fellowship. The support of the in-group. I have too many examples of this to count. It's also one reason I stay off of people's pages. I don't want to be bum-rushed by zealots. I know you know what I'm talking about here. And all this simplifies life, man. Stability, security, certain satisfaction. It's the warm glow of tribalism. Primitive tribalism, fellowship. Crystallization also closes minds. Well, this seems pretty self-evident. <laughs> a personal set of prejudices, beliefs, uh, and objective justification. And the entire personality revolves around those things. The person becomes their inseminated opinions. New ideas become a problem. Oh, I've experienced this a lot. New ideas are a problem. A threat, a threat, a threat to the fabricant's identity. He will defend himself against the threat because it threatens to annihilate his certainties. His worldview, Weltauschung, or whatever it is, that that German word I keep mispronouncing. And eventually he comes to hate everything opposed to what propaganda has made him love, has made him acquire. 
He quotes a guy named Savoy here. He calls it reactions of defense against the destroyer, the destroyer of security, the destroyer of the adopted myth. This is like walking into a Baptist church and preaching against God. How are they going to react to that? Propaganda has created a system of opinions and tendencies which will not be subjected to criticism. Will not be subjected to criticism whatsoever. No ambiguity or mitigation of feelings. No ambiguity of feelings whatsoever. Propaganda has inseminated in him irrational certainties. Because they are irrational, they seem to him to be part of his personality. He thinks they are him. He doesn't realize, never see it either, that they've been inseminated. They're not a part of him. They're a foreign part injected into his body. Then he comes to feel personally attacked when these certainties are attacked. Oh my God, I have been here. Now, my resistance days, yeah, I couldn't figure that out either. Why am I feeling personally attacked here? I must fight back. Well, I understand it now. I know a lot of people who are like this. Personally attacked when these certainties are attacked. Because deep down in your head, deep down inside, that cognitive dissonance nerve is a twitching. There's a threat there. It might get through that, that brick wall propaganda, that marble wall propaganda is built around it prevent anything from getting in there and disturbing your sense of peace and certainty, your self-certitude, your self-righteousness. It might take you away from your place at the side of God. He feels so close to something he considers sacred. And in his mind, it is. This genuine taboo prevents our hero from entertaining any new ideas that might create ambiguity or self-doubt within. The realm of the sacred it's a legitimate threat to his entire sense of self. Of course he's going to protect it. And the tragedy is that it's a sense that isn't even his. That is the mind crime. That's the mind rape. It's a tragedy when it gets to this point. You are no longer your own human being. And finally, this leads me to my favorite part of this. It's called the religious personality. <laughs> Maybe you've sensed it going there already. A lot of this sounds religious, doesn't it? It sounds like a batshit fundamentalist, a Puritan. Somebody in the worst tradition of religion. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> the psychological life organized around an irrational external and collective tenet that provides a scale of values, rules, and behavior, and a principle of social integration. How is that not religion? That's what propaganda offers. That's what indoctrination into an ideological system offers. A psychological life organized around an irrational, external, and collective, collectively shared tenant that provides a scale of values, rules of behavior, and a principle of social integration. Fellowship. Your place in the world and in the universe. Sins. Commandments. Punishments. I actually quoted this part. In a society in the process, back in 1964, of secularization, propaganda responds to the religious need, but lends much more vigor and intransigence to the resulting religious personality, and this is a limited and rigid personality that mechanically applies divine commandments, is incapable of engaging in human dialogue, no, it must minister and convert, 
can't have dialogue. It will never question values it has placed above the individual. All this is produced by propaganda, which pretends to have lost none of its humanity, pretends to act for the good of mankind, pretends to represent the highest type of human being. In this respect, strict orthodoxies, ideological or religious, (laughs) have always been the same. There's no question that this is a religious state. Propaganda seems to be a means of soothing personal deficiencies like self-doubt. Right? And it simultaneously plunges the individual into what he calls this neurotic state. And he says this is apparent from the rigid responses of the propagandee. Also from the unimaginative and stereotyped attitude. Unimaginative and stereotyped attitude. Inability to adjust to situations other than those created by propaganda. I think that's huge. The inability to adjust to situations other than those created by propaganda. The need for strict opposites. Black and white. Good and evil. With us or against us. Involvement in unreal conflicts. (sighs) Created and blown up by propaganda. This is everywhere. Easily triggered, folks. Outrage industrial complex. Involvement in unreal conflicts created and blown up by propaganda. You're triggered. These conflicts aren't real most of the time. You just think they are. You've been told they are, so you react in kind. Self-righteous mind, your self-righteous addicted elephant gets his dopamine hit. You can see this clearly at play. These unreal conflicts. A few weeks ago, you remember Trump's uh, quote-unquote racist attacks on these congresswomen of color? Were they really racist? Are you sure those were racist attacks, or was he just criticizing these women? Was he really making a racist statement? It doesn't matter. The racist bomb was lobbed because there was an attack on something residing inside the realm of the sacred. The protected class has been assaulted. Unreal conflicts created and blown up by propaganda. Alul says to mistake an artificial conflict for a real one is a characteristic of neurosis. So is the tendency of the propagandee to give everything his own narrow interpretation. You see it through the filter of propaganda. And he does that, the propagandee does that, to deprive facts of their real meanings. Tendency of the propagandee to give everything his own narrow interpretation to deprive facts of their real meaning in order to integrate them into his own system. This is context. This is spin to fit. This is alternative facts. And also give them an emotive colorization. Again, height, 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 Jonathan, height, height, height. It's everywhere. He also says that the neurotic anxiously seeks the esteem and affection of the largest number of people possible. He wants to impress the group and mass. Hello, Twitter. Esteem and affection of the largest number of people. Is there anything, is there a better sentence that could be written about the Twitter thing? Seeks the esteem and affection of the largest number of people possible. They even put it on your profile. How many people's esteem and affection you've acquired? Status. The propagandee does not deviate one iota. 
Because losing the affection of the mob, the group, the cult, the in-group means extreme suffering. This is hugely important. There's a whole section on this, on what happens when you lose support of the group. There is a path to empathy here. There's a reason people don't leave their group. I saw this immediately. As soon as I withdrew from the resistance, oh my God, you would be amazed at the comments that were lobbed at me. It was nothing personal. I just didn't want to talk politics with these people anymore. Oh my God, what are you becoming a Trump? What the fuck's the matter with you? And it turned into a lot of times into childish exchanges. These personal attacks that were not provoked at all. I had this happen to me a couple of weeks ago. Looking at you, Austin, where I just don't want to discuss politics with you anymore. I am no longer in your group. You are no longer in my group. Holy shit. Like, I got her out of the group, and then she went to her personal fucking Facebook page and started taking to me on there. Where all I did was say, you know what? I, I just don't want to hear from you anymore as far as politics goes. What happened to you? Where the fuck was that coming from? Well, right there. The hostility toward those who withdraw their friendship or political discussion participation (laughs) and hostility toward those remaining outside his group or alter their beliefs, you know, disrupting the political comradeship. It's happened a lot to me. Uh, The symptoms of the quote-unquote neurotic's need for self-justification also mirrors the propagandee's need for self-justification. It resides in everyone. And this is one of the primary things that leads to insincerity. The need for justification. I used to call this the morrow of humanity, hidden lives. It's also an Emerson self-reliance. And this piece that I'm writing about the solitary man, I have written actually about the solitary man, just waiting for the right time. Today is not it. In the neurotic, this need for self-justification is extraordinary. According to Alul and others, it also mirrors the propagandese. Again, this is Height's rampaging elephant, self-justification. Rhetorical trial by combat. Showing everybody how awesome you are. The appearance of being right. <sighs> Far exceeding the need to be right. It turns into egocentric performance art. This is the core Of the problem with social media influencers as well. The need for self-justification. Followers as justification. I could do an entire show about this stuff. I mean, this is Dr. Eli. It's the, the reflection in the mirror. This is a big deal. The need, the neurotic need for self-justification among the propagandized. I mean, this is social media, this is the id, this is in Century of the Self. If you want to find out about Edward Bernays, go watch that on YouTube. Oof. Neurotics, egotists, narcissists, dopamine addicts looking for self-justification. People become addicted to their own sense of self-righteousness. That's how they find meaning in their lives. This is probably tied to Dostoevsky's struggle. I've talked about that a number of times. Where if you're not really struggling for something, if you're not really fighting a legitimate battle for survival, if your life doesn't have any legitimate sense of survival purpose, you'll manufacture the struggle. Self-justification. A sense of importance in a sea of insignificance, man. Our lives. (laughs) 
I'm thinking of Tyler Durden here, man. A sense of importance in a sea of insignificance. We're all connected now, but when we go online, we're largely insignificant because every the entire world is right there. So we're just a drop in the ocean. The neurotic's need for self-justification also expresses itself in the projection of hostile motives on the outside world. <laughs> Everybody's bad. Destructive impulses do not emanate from him, oh no, but from something or someone outside. For example, he does not want to fool or exploit others, oh no, others want to do that to him. That is a mechanism reproduced by propaganda with great precision. The warmonger projects warmongering on quote-unquote the enemy. The projected intention spreads to the propagandi who is then mobilized and prepared for war. This is ideological as well. Activism, right? The resistance creating the counter-revolutionaries. Trump creating the resistance. Hostilities are aroused at the same time he's made to project his own aggression onto the enemy. It's bizarre because his hostilities are aroused at the very same time the propaganda is made to project his own aggression onto the quote-unquote enemy. It's a victim-enemy scapegoat. We're the victim, they're the enemy. This assumes enormous proportion in the mind of the propaganda, even, even, okay, admittedly, admitting that in addition to this process, some legitimate reasons always exist for some of these reactions. Remember I told you, propaganda doesn't lie to you. The best propaganda doesn't. And obviously, this leads to another topic altogether. One that I could probably do an entire show on. Maybe I will. Uh, truth and propaganda. He gets into that. How truth and propaganda interact, intertwine. I, I urge you to remember. It's very important that you remember. If you think that propaganda is just tall tales and lies, you're wrong. And you're making a colossal mistake. You're opening your mind's door. It's the entire scope of propaganda if you think it just lies to you. The best propaganda does not lie. That's a Joseph Goebbels thing. Again, 1965, before instantaneous global connectivity. Before we were each our own personal mass media outlet. Ingesting, digesting, and then re-disseminating propaganda ourselves. And in regards to anxiety, I mean, it's nearly impossible to escape this shit. In fact, we seem to be feeding on this and unleashing the primal forces of our innate hatreds. Would you believe that there's a method for that, too? Propaganda of agitation and integration. I talked about it in the last episode. That deserves its own episode. There's things like alienation. I've talked about this. This is coming very soon. It's going to be a project. Alienation from oneself. Not from everybody else. He's talking about alienation from yourself. Becoming someone else. Someone else takes over. You are alien to yourself. Loss of intellectual, personal, even spiritual autonomy. There's also stuff like the psychic dissociation effect. And polls are really good for that. And statistics. Well, 73% of the people like to stick shoehorns up their butt. Also, the creation of the need. The need. For propaganda. A physical need. I'm not kidding. I am not kidding at all. A lot of you are already there. That's the story of our time. If you don't think so, how do you suppose they've figured out ways to monetize propaganda? Media 101 Podcast, please go listen if you missed it. There is such a need for it in this day and age that they have figured out how to monetize it. How to sell you your own mind-fucking. 
how to sell you your own mind rape. Think about that. It's because we want it. It's because we need it. We think we need it. And you know what? I have a stack of papers over there that say we just might. We just might need it. And then there's this thing that I found that it's a really shitty name for the section. He calls it the ambiguity of psychological effects. The ambiguity. Now, like, what the hell? I, I almost skipped it. And I, I started reading this thing and it blew my mind. It's that powerful. Contradictory psychological results. This is probably the nexus of what he was calling neurosis. These adverse uh, psychological effects like uh, uh, anxiety, PTSD, all this shit. Anxiety triggered because on some level you know they, and thus you, on some level you know this, <laughs> deep down inside, you know they, and thus you, are largely full of shit. And then you engage in rhetorical fuckery simply to avoid saying, I don't know. Or worse, hey, they're right about that. Or, I was wrong. And to wrap this up, I want to give you a grand design warning. If you're looking for a grand design, a solution to all this, if you're looking for the blueprint, <laughs> nope, you're not going to get that here. You're not going to get it out of that book either, as best I can tell. The only thing he says, detach yourself from personal interest. I mentioned this earlier. You've got to take your self-interest out of it. You've got to get your dog out of that fight. You've got to detach your identity. Excommunicate from the church. That's the only way. And then you've got to shut this shit off. You've got to avoid confusing, ingesting data with being informed. Information and understanding are two different things. And you cannot possibly understand anything if you're ingesting too much data. Your brain does not work that way. I will have a whole slew of podcasts devoted to Nicholas Carr and the shallows at some point. That goes into the physical effects of the internet, of being online too much, of blasting your brain with too much information and data without mining into one specific thing. And really understanding it, really learning and internalizing your understanding of a subject or a topic. That's why they call it surfing. You're skimming the top. Where the real information and the real knowledge, any path to wisdom lies well beneath the surface. You're never going to get there. Zipping your rock along the surface. You need to die. No, no uh, sausage party hope is on the way. I apologize for that. Did I indicate that there was? If you thought there was, you created that yourself. <laughs> Aside from near, complete detachment, no offered solution at all in this book that I found. The key here, the key thing to remember, is that we want our propaganda. We need our propaganda. That's why we continue to scoop it, fully untreated, directly from the informational sewers, straight into our mouths. And then we wipe it on whoever is unfortunate enough to be within reach. The bottom line is this. You, personally, are responsible for maintaining your own mind. You. Not me. Not MSNBC. Not CNN. Don't blame Fox News either. Don't blame the political candidates. You are responsible for maintaining and protecting your own mind. The propagandists can only reach those who are listening to them. 
We've decided it's worth it. I mean, a lot of us already know this. Now, you can choose to believe it. You can choose to just dismiss it all if you want to. But once you see that, you've got a choice to make. You're making a conscious decision at some point. Once you understand that that device in your pocket is a propagandist's wet dream, along with advertising and everything else, once you understand that, you've got to make a choice. Do you want to control and protect your own mind, or do you want the convenience and luxury and joy of your device? And most of us, I understand it, most of us will choose the device. Messenger's fine. You know, that's a one-to-one thing. A propagandist is never going to deal with you one-to-one. That's too much fucking work. You can still stay in touch with people using Messenger. It's possible. It's real easy. (laughs) Text messaging. Lots of different ways to stay in touch with people. No, you want, most of you want, that stream of outrage, that dopamine hit of either feeling self-righteous or seeing how evil the enemy is. You want to feel like you're staying informed. You want to be, in your mind, the current events man who is up to speed on every detail of the current situation nationwide and globally. You like that. The mind likes information. Nicholas Carr gets addicted to it. <laughs> but it is a choice. Once you understand how this shit works, it turns into a personal choice. An issue of personal responsibility. You, you, not me, No one else is responsible for the maintenance and protection of your own mind. Fixing the firewall in your brain. Making sure that your mind cannot be hijacked. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to repeat this over and over and over and over and over again. I know you think you're special. I know you think you're a big critical thinker. And you're not going to be susceptible to this. But you are. I am. You are, we all are, and the evil, the insidiousness of this, maybe the most insidious part of it is, is that you're being manipulated, you're being inseminated, and you'll never feel the ejaculate. You'll always think, and that's why it's, <laughs> why it's so powerful, you'll always think it's you doing this for yourself. You'll always think your thoughts are organic, that you've come to some conclusion of truth. When in fact, your mind has been molested. You've got to see it. You've got to see it. Well, you don't have to. But if you're listening to this still, if you've gotten to this point in this podcast, I assume you want to. Or you're at least moderately interested in this sort of thing. Pay attention. We have a lot of words for propaganda these days. Public relations. Spin. Analysis. It's almost ubiquitous now. It's nearly impossible to find something that isn't trying to mindfuck you in one direction or another. Something that gives you the opportunity to sit down quietly and reflect on an issue by yourself. And decide what it is you think about something by yourself. Where are you even going to get the data? Where are you going to get the information to be able to do that? Without it being pre-spun. You can't. It's too well done now. Again, I've said in other episodes that to try to determine whether it's good or bad is an exercise of masturbation. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you think it's good or bad or right or wrong. Rape is rape. 
regardless of whether or not you call it by another name. And it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. You cannot avoid it. The only way you can avoid it is to disconnect. I mentioned in the last podcast that that sounds horrific to most people. That's being apathetic. Oh my God, the only thing that's this is being apathetic. No, you're wrong. It's better to be apathetic and uninformed than passionately misinformed. The man who knows nothing is closer to the truth than the man who believes falsehoods, than the man who has been deceived. It's not a very comfortable thought, is it? I agree. None of this stuff's comfortable. Well, there it is. That's episode number 118. Finally in the can, those two episodes, number 35 and 36, you can find them back in August of 2019. My God, I cannot believe it has been nearly four years, three and a half years now, a little over that, uh, since I recorded those. That last chunk, sort of the preview of the Jacques Ellul book, should give you an idea the depth of what is coming when I get back to this stuff. His entire appendix is devoted to sort of a mini little analysis of Mao's propaganda, creating the socialist man, starting with children. Sound familiar to you? If you like the anti-woke stuff, it's not going away. (laughs) It's going to be steered away from Tucker. There's other people out there as well that I'll talk about. Edward Bernays, I've talked about him a lot. Uh, Over the last few years, this podcast started out for the new folks. I, I thought... A few years ago that Edward Bernays was going to be the supervillain here. He's the guy who took propaganda and renamed it public relations. He saw how we were able to use propaganda in the run-up to World War I to gather uh, public support. Lipman goes into this as well. He was part of it, Uh, at least the propaganda effort during the war. But he, uh, Lipman, was completely just horrified by what happened. But Bernays went the other way. Hmm. Well, if we can drag a country into war, what can we do with advertising? What can we do with political campaigns? It's at the beginning of the radio age. They had this new electronic mass media at their disposal. But what can we do with this? This is the nexus. This is the beginning of the modern propaganda industrial complex. Alul puts forth that real propaganda, modern propaganda, cannot be separated from a technological society. He also says that it's necessary. Be prepared for that. The need for propaganda. Did I get into that in the uh, last section there? The need for propaganda I have. In fact, it's sitting right in front of me right now. (laughs) That is one of the most disturbing aspects of this. The idea that people cannot do without it. That it's just we are constitutionally wired to demand it. And I tell you, I I hated that. It horrified me when I ran into it. Had Bernays painted in my head as the supervillain who I was going to just eviscerate. I was going to rip him down. I was, he's a malicious Oppenheimer, right? The informational Oppenheimer. And when you start to think about how we as human beings may indeed have a need for this stuff. Also something else for you to think about. How do you distinguish between information, education, and propaganda? Is there a clear line or is it just something you agree or disagree with? If I agree with it, well, I'm just an advocate. I'm raising awareness. I'm educating. 
Whereas if you disagree with the material, it's propaganda. People indulging in that all the time. This is not an easy subject. Even the definition, when I, when I get into the preface and the introduction of this book real soon, even defining propaganda, the definition of it is troublesome. Originally, propaganda was a religious term, literally a religious term, spreading the gospel, propagating the, the gospel, the religion, the scripture. That's where the word propaganda comes from. It was in the religious realm before it was taken, borrowed, co-opted, hijacked, perhaps. <laughs> it's not easy stuff, man. It's going to you know, require an open mind to listen to it. It's going to require introspection. It's going to require a willingness to look in the mirror. And I've been saying this for years, since I think 2018, the, 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 the only solution here is that we have to do that en masse as a collective, a collective evolution in self-awareness. So if you're going to sit through the stuff that's coming, that's one of the prerequisites being willing to take a critical look at yourself. And we as a people, we as a species, it's not just a people, this isn't just an American thing. As a species, being willing to critically look at the flawed, perhaps corrupt software in our minds. The inability and unwillingness. Unwillingness, inability to see truth from falsehood, it doesn't matter. As I paraphrase Lippmann once again, People that can't tell truth from falsehood, whether it's because they don't have the proper equipment, the equipment's flawed, or they just simply don't want to, the reasons are irrelevant that people does not remain free. So if you want to maintain your freedom, your existence as an autonomous human being, and you don't want to have authoritarianism, totalitarianism, you don't want the ministry of truth to hijack all the channels of information and tell you what reality is, you have to be able and willing to investigate why this stuff works. And if there are any solutions, in my mind, as I just said, the only one that I can see, Alul put zero out there. He, I think, saw it as an inevitability, didn't dismiss it <laughs> as being a good thing, just because it's an inevitable thing. In fact, he gets into that in the preface. You'll hear about that soon enough. He didn't see solutions. But the only one that I can see, <laughs> it's a snowball's chance in hell, is that collective evolution of self-awareness. Being willing to look at ourselves, warts and all, in a functioning mirror rather than a funhouse mirror showing us what we want to see. That evolution is coming. One way or another, the easy way or the hard way, more than likely the hard way. When we brutalize ourselves enough with tribalism, these mutually exclusive informational universes, agitation, hatreds, group hatreds, we're going to get to the point eventually. One way or another where we hit rock bottom and we're forced to look at who and what we are. I'm tempted to play the Sausage Party song right here. <laughs> Sausage party. Gonna have another episode coming soon. Thanks for clicking in. Talk to you later.